What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael, a.k.a. The Pod, a.k.a. Volleyball Steve Francis, Pina of SB Nation. Michael, your legend continues to grow. We had a lot of follow-up questions over the weekend about your stunning high school volleyball career and incredible physical attributes. But before we get to that, we've got a bunch of amazing questions to dive in uh, from the Open Floor Globe. And I want to just say real quickly, thank you to everyone out there who's pulling together. I try to hype you guys up as much as possible uh, every single episode. I'll be honest, Michael. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're average. But you know me. I always just say they're great questions. Mm -hmm. But we have been getting amazing questions from all different parts of the globe. I think on this, uh, this show alone, we've got New Zealand. We've got Europe. We've got Australia, uh, you know, coast to coast across the United States, of course, as well. It is so gratifying and so helpful and so inspiring that you guys are contributing in that way. You know, I had a pretty bad case of writer's block over the weekend, Michael. I was starting to get down in the dumps because there's no games to watch and how am I going to cope and what am I going to do? Going through uh, the emails that we got really got my brain back on track. And so I appreciate it, guys. Keep them coming. Open floor mail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. This is your little way to change the world or at least make my life somewhat better and easier. So thank you very much. Now, Michael, without further ado, we had a great follow-up question from Dr. Steven and we played the NBA what-ifs game um, and you mentioned the Harden trade and you threw out some crazy hard into the Celtics trade that I just let slip through the cracks. I didn't even want to fight you on that one. I think I mentioned Brandon Roy and staying healthy and could the Blazers have win a title and, and so on and so forth. But Steven had a way better one. Okay, he writes, uh, Ben was talking about the 1984 draft mistakes of the Blazers, and it reminded me of the best trade that got turned down. Before that draft, Portland offered Clyde Drexler and the number two pick to Houston for the promising young player, Ralph Sampson. Houston declined. They used their first pick on one of the best centers of all time, Akeem Olajuwon. If Houston had accepted, they would have had Akeem, Clyde, and their choice of Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, or John Stockton with the number two pick. Having just picked Akeem, there's no way they would have picked up Sam Bowie right after that. So here are my questions, Stephen writes. If they had a young core of Akeem, Clyde, and Jordan, how good would they have been? Would it have been the sum of all the parts as we know them, or would they have limited each other's growth and development? And then number two, if the Rockets didn't select Jordan with the second pick because it may have been viewed as a duplicate of Clyde's skills, who would have been the best second pick to mesh with Akeem and Clyde? Having grown up in Houston, this is a group I would have loved to watch in the 80s and 90s. Keep up the great work. So incredible question from Steven. And I'll be honest, I hadn't heard this one before, Michael. And so I went running to Google. And sure enough, Akeem Olajuwon himself, in a book that he wrote, had mentioned that this was a possibility out there. So we'll just get to take it as fact that it's true, that it went down exactly how Dr. Steven said it did. What do you make of this scenario and how would you answer his questions? This is also a what if question that I was not aware of until I saw this email. And I also was not aware that Akeem Olajuwon has written a book. That's amazing. I cannot wait to read it. Um, this fake trade or I guess trade that never happened, that could have happened. Uh, I mean, if Hakeem Olajuwon... And Michael Jordan to say, I mean, just we'll, we'll, we'll table Clyde Drexler for just a second. If those two were teammates at any point in their careers and they could have grown alongside one another, I mean, 
it's just like they're naturally complementary to of the they would have been like the the first and second best player in the league for stretches throughout their prime and i mean we've seen dynasties and jordan himself already had one with scotty pippen but this would have been just I, I don't even know what we could compare it to there'd be i mean it Shaq and kobe is probably the number one but this would be like so b- better, better than, at both spots better <laughs> yeah exactly better than Shaq and kobe it would have been just absolutely phenomenal separate they teamed up to win eight straight titles in the 1990s right so together would it have been inconceivable that they won eight straight titles i mean it's like that's the kind of thing we're talking about like it could have been a a 1960s celtics type of dynasty if those two had played together where my mind went first on this idea though um and i'll actually just take the big three uh as a group I think that the defensive activity would have been really what stood out, right? Because Akeem was known for having the crazy steals, the crazy block numbers, just being everywhere, super agile, uh, long arms, good timing, just very, very disruptive inside. Maybe not the most physical uh, center, but certainly a kind of guy who you didn't want to challenge. And if you did challenge, you'd probably lose a lot. Michael, throughout his career, especially uh, you know before he started aging, the defensive activity was just off the charts. I mean, the guy was flying around, um, you know, one defensive player of the year award, uh, could lock you down one-on-one, Would was no stranger to helping down on bigs and swatting shots from behind, super quick hands, great timing, love to get out in transition. And so this idea of them sort of being a defense first team where they're just wreaking havoc, forcing turnovers, and then getting Jordan and Clyde out onto the break, um, that sounds freaking awesome. And it really is an incredible what-if scenario that... Uh, Stevens describing. Now let's talk about Clyde's role in this because someone has to sacrifice and that's sort of Stevens question, right? And we know Mike is not going to sacrifice. Mike's going to be Mike. Uh, Akeem Olajuwon, I think he's actually one of the most adaptable superstars ever. I think you can make him work with almost anyone, especially during his era. Um, He could score, but didn't need to dominate the ball. Uh, He could shoot so he can give you a little bit of spacing. Um, You know, he's going to hit the glass no matter what. He's going to be a great defensive presence no matter what. Great leader no matter what. So I think that that part of the, the trio is solid. Now with Clyde, um, and I think I mentioned this before, I mean, there was moments where in his own mind, he could try to challenge Jordan, right? He could kind of be on that alpha dog level, kind of going head to head. Could it have worked for him in a Scotty role, do you think? Would they eventually have had to trade him off maybe to fill out the rotation? Uh, And keep in mind, there's a personal connection there because Clyde and Akeem, you know, played in college together at the University of Houston. Clyde's from Houston. Um, you know, the Rockets would have loved to have him, and they eventually did get him, uh, of course, you know, later into the 90s. Uh, what do you think about that dynamic? Could he have found a fit? Yeah, it's really funny that you you bring up Scotty. Could he have filled the Scotty role? And I mean, I think Drexler eventually gets traded for an elite wing defender who can handle the ball and shoot a little bit. So like, just trade him for Scotty Pippen. That would be wonderful. Uh, I, I think the overlap with Jordan and, and Drexler... Uh, on the court and then off the court as well when we talk about which one is going to try to take the back seat who's the third option who's not getting the touches and getting the shots that they would be accustomed to or that they feel that they felt that they deserved Uh, I just don't I don't I don't know if it would have worked with Drexler and Jordan at the same time so here's an interesting uh, question that just occurred to me, Michael. We talk about this alpha dog stuff, and you know every team has to have one obvious leader, especially in the modern era. You don't want guys clashing. There's so much scrutiny. Um, that's just sort of how the modern NBA has become. And there's more teams now, right? So 
spreading out the top talent uh, is just sort of a more natural thing. Um, and when you do get like, you know, big twos or big threes, there's usually a very clear hierarchy in between those players. Back then, though, it was a little different, right? There was fewer teams. The Celtics were super loaded. The Lakers were super loaded. You almost had to be loaded to kind of compete at that time. Um, and that was the problem for Jordan for so long as even when he had Pippen, he couldn't get over the hump because, you know, three through nine in the rotation, like wasn't up to snuff to kind of get past, uh, you know, the really good teams, whether it's Boston or, or Detroit. So would there have been more motivation in the 80s and 90s for Clyde to sacrifice, to be part of a winning group? Would there have, would that have just been more normalized as opposed to him, you know, going onto his Instagram account and hearing his trainer tweet out about how he, he needs more uh, touches and, you know, he's the third wheel and he's getting mocked like Chris Bosh and everything else. Like, is there a generational difference where they could have made it work at least for a few titles? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't sound like you're buying what I'm no, selling here. I'm, I'm not because I mean the Houston Rockets went to the finals. I think in Hakeem's second season, so they jumped from 29 to 48 to 51 wins. Go to the finals, lose to the Celtics in 1986. Uh, I mean, I think that if you have Jordan instead of Ralph Sampson, like that's that's good enough. Is is what. I mean, you have the Lakers there, obviously, and they're in the middle of their dynasty. But I just think Jordan coming along as the special player that he eventually became, it's a little, it's a, it's a kind of a special situation and special circumstance, and it's very unique. And we're talking about the best of the best of the best in the history of the sport here. So I think that they would have been just fine with Jordan and Akeem kind of leading the way. Oh, you think so, huh? I Going do. I'm, 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 I'm very, <laughs> very confident in that analysis. Well, here's my question. Did the Blazers, uh, by taking Bowie, did they avoid a worse scenario? Like if they had traded Drexler and that pick for Sampson, who, you know, is a fine player and like, you know, is part of the Twin Towers and everything else. But like as his own guy, you know, what does that team really look like for the Blazers? Would having Sampson and no Drexler and no Jordan and no Bowie have actually been worse than just Bowie? I think so. But yeah, you're. This is really dark. This is a dark timeline for Blazers fans. I mean, they <laughs> thought they were out of the woods after our last episode, but no, we keep going back and attacking them. It's it's tough stuff. No, I'm saying it's better. Like, don't don't feel so bad about the Bowie pick now because it could have been worse. Um, let's let's take up Stephen's second question here, though. Like, for whatever reason, let's say the Rockets decide not to take Jordan because they're just totally convinced that Clyde's their wing guy. Who should they have taken with that number two pick after the trade if you're going to pair them with Akeem and Clyde? So obviously your your choices, Barkley, Stockton, Bowie, if you still wanted to go with the Twin Tower approach, what direction would you have gone? Well, I'm not insane, so I'm not going to say Sam Bowie is the answer here. Uh, I think just <laughs> on paper, the correct answer is probably John Stockton, just because his skill set makes the most complimentary sense you know he's a point guard max uh, pair him with a, a wing and a center and that's kind of what you would see with um you know prototypical big threes throughout nba history that had a lot of success i have a hipster response though that i don't know oh, okay so i'm just gonna throw this one out there uh sam perkins who was selected fourth overall in that draft and was michael jordan's teammate at the university of north carolina Imagine if the Rockets used him as sort of a modern stretch four 
with those double team rules where, you know, you throw it into Hakeem in the post and you basically had to hard double or it was just single coverage down low. And so I think if you actually had a coach who was, I don't know, uh, way ahead of his time and was able to kind of unlock Perkins' touch from the outside, that would be a really, really interesting, really, really interesting just chemical balance for that team. Yeah, and I mean, that's a ludicrous answer to this question. Uh, (laughs) But I do think Sam Perkins gets forgotten for history from like the stretch big narrative. Like he absolutely was. And, you know, you could argue almost like a stretch five, really. So that would have made things uh, pretty fascinating. The problem is back then, though, they just weren't shooting enough. And like even like they they, entrusting uh, big men shooters was so uh, backwards, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. That, like he probably just would have wound up standing and watching Akeem, which is basically what most of Akeem's teammates did anyways, but you might as well just had Stockton, <laughs> I think, in that scenario. Um, let me say this, though. When the Rockets did put together Olajuwon, Drexler, and Barkley, like in the 90s, right, after mm-hmm. their title run, as they're trying to stretch that little window and Barkley's, you know, uh, ring chasing, even though he never admitted on TNT. And, you know, Drexler's getting pretty deep into the male pattern baldness and everything else. Everyone's initial response when they did that was like, man, imagine if these guys were just like five years younger, right? So this notion that they could have put those three guys together in 1984 and they could have grown up together over the next 10 years is very very wild and that is one of the all-time great what-ifs and that's almost like the juiciest part of this entire scenario to me it's like uh, that feels like the young thunder almost in a way where you're just like you know so much athleticism raw talent and you know here they are just like in this incubator um would have been awesome to see i think the correct answer though is stockton right mm-hmm. because if you're getting 20 years from stockton 15 years from Olajuwon and drexler You've got, you know, solid defense at the most important places, you know, all, all, all-star all level talent at the three most important positions. Um, you're winning a lot of titles. Um, and Stockton's narrative is completely different. Drexler's narrative is probably a little bit different. Michael's going to have a hard time. Michael's probably not going 6-0 and in the finals if that team is out there in the Western Conference too. So um, there's just a lot of different layers to this. Now, on the subject of Michael Jordan, and no one ever needs to twist my arm to talk about him, though, um, but over the weekend on Saturday, it was actually the 25th anniversary of the double nickel game at Madison Square Garden, uh, where basically John Starks uh, just got absolutely tortured and annihilated by Jordan for four quarters um, in one of the most memorable games of Jordan's career. I think it was the fifth game back. Um, after his baseball, uh, you know, his, his tour uh, playing baseball <laughs> after his fir- after his first retirement, uh, you know, he's wearing number 45. All the celebrities are sitting courtside at Madison Square Garden. He starts out hot with 20 points in the first quarter. And it's just, you know, kind of a performance for the ages. Uh, Michael, I know you watched that game over the weekend. I actually went and rewatched the whole thing. And I, I wrote up a, a column about it for my Washington Post newsletter. Guys, check it out. I think it's just like the perfect time to watch that game because, you know, we're all sitting around here uh, in this uh, quarantine environment and all we can do is daydream about what it's going to be like when uh, life returns to normal and we get to watch a basketball game. 
And that was really the sense uh, in 1995 with Jordan is like you had baseball on strike, essentially. You had hockey coming off of a lockout. You had the NFL consumed by OJ Simpson and all that stuff. And everyone's looking around for like a, a sports hero. And Jordan's freaking playing baseball. And then out of nowhere, he decides, okay, I'm coming back. And the excitement factor around that uh, was just monstrous. I mean, throughout the TNT broadcast, they're just like openly like showing celebrities and being like, this guy's here to watch Michael Jordan. Here's David Stern. He's so excited because Michael Jordan's back. It's like literally like a four hour long uh, just tribute to Jordan, uh, you know, from the TNT broadcast. So, um, uh, you know, actually when I was watching it, that made me realize that I didn't ever really had a choice, Michael. I was just fully brainwashed and indoctrinated by all of our uh, media and society, you know, growing up at that time period. Like if you just watched that, you would think that Jordan was like the ruler of the world, right? And we were all just like his his minions. Um, but anyways, did you have any major takeaways? Or I, I know you took some notes you said about watching that double nickel game. What stood out to you upon the rewatch? I mean, the first thing is just like how stylistically jarring it it was both. I, I mean, just, you know, watching Hubie Brown speak, watching Craig Sager speak, watching... Um, as you said, all the celebrities on press row, Spike Lee, a young Spike Lee, it was just incredible. But just how they played the game was pretty bizarre to me. And if you just go back and even just watch the first quarter, it's the ball getting pushed up the floor by Scottie Pippen on almost every possession and just throwing it to Michael Jordan at around the right elbow. And the Knicks basically had to figure out if they were going to hard double him or if they were just going to let him go one-on-one and, as you said, aptly, torture John Starks and torture him, he did. And it it wasn't even like, I don't think it was that enjoyable to watch in terms of, you know, it, it was just this one guy. I mean, he was hitting beautiful shots, and they were contested. And now with that we, everything that we know about analytics, these shots would not be taken at the clip that Jordan launched them. But I mean, it was it was kind of just it was weird to to to, to see. Well, it's methodical, right? I mean, he's just going to the same moves, the same locations over and over again, and there's like nothing that you can do because he was in an unguardable groove. What I loved about it, though, is they really built Starks up as like, this guy gives Jordan more trouble than anyone else in the league. And then he's just getting absolutely just worked play after play. So here's my question for you, because you're a New York guy. I mean, you're a Boston guy, but you're a New York guy now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Yeah. he was a cult hero, right? Underdog story, undersized, so tough, really did work hard, had some incredible dunks at various points. Not necessarily the most efficient player, but was like that perfect Pat Riley guard, right? To just like dig in, play hard, um, never back down from a challenge. And even at the very closing moments of that 55 game, he's talking trash to Jordan <laughs> before the final play of the game. I mean, it's just a kind of quintessential uh, Knicks hero, right? Can you imagine how big Starks would be in the modern era if he had the benefits of like Instagram, uh, memes, all the other stuff? Like, don't you think, I think he would have been bigger. Like, you know, J.R. Smith kind of got like outsized attention for how good of a player he was. And he was like on online, he's like a top 10 player, basically. Not in terms of how good he is, but how famous he is and talked about and everything like during his prime. Don't you feel like Starks would have had the same thing where, he might have been like New York's like fourth most important player or something, fifth most important player. 
but he would have like he had a chance to almost be like a national level icon if he played in the social media era or am i just hallucinating no i think you're you're onto something here i, I what i think of is like if Dion Waiters and Fred Van Fleet were kind of one person <laughs> where if Van Fleet kind of had the the ego and the self-delusion but I mean Fred Van Fleet, Fred Van Fleet is obviously a super confident dude but he doesn't kind of exude it in the same way that Waiters has throughout his career so if you just combine those two I think you might have something like what John Starks was because when you think back at of that era and I mean shout out to you for thinking that I'm the number one fan or the 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 the, the president of the John Starks fan club but when you do think back uh to that time Starks is probably the second player that pops into my head behind Patrick Ewing. And I guess, like, I I think of Pat Riley, I think of Patrick Ewing, and then I think of John Starks. And that is kind of insane because it's John Starks. (laughs) I mean, what are we, like, it, it feels like a lot of his most memorable moments were in embarrassing defeat, but he still has this admirable, grimy, underdog reputation, if that makes any sense. For sure. I mean, Jordan elevated lots of people, right? It's like guys like Barkley and and Drexler get talked about in Jordan's shadow, but there was also these guys who were like the designated Jordan stoppers who are going to be remembered forever because that was sort of their role. And usually, like you're saying, they were getting embarrassed. I mean, I think Jordan eliminated the Knicks from the playoffs five times, you know, five and oh in the playoffs against them. I mean, that's painful. And and Sarks was definitely there for a lot of those big moments. Um, Walk me through the end game, though, of the double nickel, because I know you were watching it pretty uh, carefully. What stood out to you about how that game closed? Um, You know, what was going through your mind as you're starting to see, like, the Garden fans getting excited and, you know, the Knicks are getting to the free throw line a lot. Ewing's getting to the free throw line and they're kind of building some momentum. It's a nip and tuck game the whole way. Walk me through the end game. Yeah, the the stretch of this game, the, the, the home stretch is just terrific. I mean, you know that the ball is going to Michael Jordan on every single play. Everyone knows, like, in the moment what's going to happen. He's going to isolate against John Starks. And uh, I'm going to pick it up with about a minute left to go where Jordan drives left on Starks. He's under the hoop. He finds Scottie Pippen, who, I got to say, rewatching this game, Scottie Pippen, is just like I cannot say enough awesome things about him. Hubie Brown at the, at the very beginning of the game had this line that I want to put on a T-shirt or tattoo across my back. He just said, "Scotty Pippen is murder." Right after Pippen banked in and up and under, <laughs> I was like, uh, "That's the best call any announcer has ever made." Um, didn't didn't he also call Scotty Pippen Tonto at one point during that <laughs> game, which was like a little bit strange, uh, but. Uh, I am so glad you said that. Pippen, at this stage of his career, was lights out. And he was leading the Bulls in pretty much every statistical category, obviously, before Jordan came back. But his all-around game was just unbelievable. And it's one of those situations where, like, okay, yeah, he was the second-best player on that team. He also might have been the second-best player in the league. You know, at least he's in the conversation at that point for everything he's doing um, and how long and imposing he is. So right before that pass to Pippen, though, 
Jordan hits a jumper. So then, you know, after hitting that jumper at the top of the key on Starks, then it's like, all right, they know I'm going to try to shoot that jumper. So then I drive left, set up Pippen, draw mm-hmm. the double team. Pippen's wide open, just kisses in this crazy bank shot. Oh, my right? God. Just, like, incredible. And we were just talking about comparisons that Hubie Brown has been. Hubie then compares him to Sam Jones, the all-time Celtic who was known for his artistic ability to hit bank shots. And... Uh, just I know that we're just this is a Mike supposed we're supposed to be fetishizing Michael Jordan and everything that made him a legend <laughs> but I just want to stop and say a couple more things about Scottie Pippen if I may uh, at the start of the game and I guess throughout most of it Scottie Pippen's defensive strategy was basically to be a one-man press at half court and it was just like no one in the game today, maybe Kawhi Leonard could get away with this. Just like the ground that he covered, the intimidation factor of him, you know, the point guard's bringing it up and he has his own man to beat. But then there's at waiting for him at half court is Scottie Pippen. And it's like, I could only imagine how terrifying that would be for anyone. Uh, and poor Derek Harper was just abused the whole game. Um, no. Pippen's footwork and quickness is just crazy, you know? I mean, I don't understand how he is so light on his feet with that kind of a frame because, of course, the arms stand out and, like, the disruption of the passing lanes, that's the stuff that you expect and that's the stuff that I really remember. But that press works because this guy is, like, the fleetest player on the court. No, and there's – I mean, there's – it got the the Knicks out of their offense – on just about every half, like every time the Bulls were able to set it up after they hit a basket or drew a foul or whatever, uh, the Knicks offense was just one of the ugliest things you'll ever see in a professional basketball <laughs> game. And that's just, that's one guy's impact. It was incredible. Also, he had a dunk in transition on Charles Smith that I, I don't remember ever seeing before. And and one just, I mean, he was on the ground for like, he's, you know, he rolls over on, along the baseline. He's on the ground for a few minutes, but it was just like, if that dunk happened today, it would be like, it would just have gone viral, like at, at a degree oh, yeah. that we just. I mean, the fact that I've never seen this dunk before is a testament to how how many ridiculous moments Scottie Pippen had throughout his career. I mean, that's a million view dunk within like fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. And the best part about it was that Jordan came over to check on him, but he wasn't asking Scottie if he was okay. He was just like telling Scottie he was okay. It was just like <laughs> you're fine. Get up and shoot the free throw. Like he wasn't being rude about it. It was just like that, like big brother leadership mentality of like, yeah, I know you just got into this giant midair collision and your life flashed before your eyes. Don't worry, it's all good. Go up and hit the free throw. Um, so after Scotty Banks had mm-hmm. shot in Bulls' next possession, Jordan goes back to work and hits like this crazy stop and start double clutch jumper over Starks again, kind of from his pet spot, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, now he's kind of set up the Knicks where he's at 55. There's like 14 seconds left, and he has just hit a jumper, set up Scotty on the double, and then hit another jumper. And the whole building is like, all right, Michael's about to win this. How is he going to win it? Score tied at 14 seconds. Final play of the game, to me, is one of the all-time plot twists in NBA history. I remember watching (laughs) it live when I was a kid and not believing it when it happened. I remember my dad having the same reaction as Hubie. Hubie just screams out, that's outstanding. And by the way, I think Hubie might be the MVP of this entire rewatch. No question. Uh, he's just 
incredible the whole way start to finish. Um, but my dad had the same reaction when we were watching it. He could not believe it. He was just chuckling uh, and just sort of awed Jordan. Um, you could see the the crazy celebration factor from the Bulls bench. Jordan's pumping his fist. And like the entire Madison Square Garden crowd is just shocked. So walk me through the final play, what I'm calling one of the great plot twists in NBA history. Jordan's got the ball, top of the key, one-on-one against Starks. Okay, so in watching this game for, I guess it was, I don't recall ever watching it before. So this was the first time I ever watched it on YouTube over the weekend. And there's about three minutes to go when Jordan, Jordan was just operating from the right elbow, top of the key, like down the stretch, uh, with just there was really no uh, no stopping him and so with about three minutes to go uh, Patrick Ewing comes up out of the paint and he actually blocks one of Jordan's fadeaways and it, it leads to a John Starks fast break dunk and yeah and at that moment Jordan's legs start to look a little bit heavy and that mm-hmm. had been a big narrative that season is like is he going to get back into shape and like his shooting numbers are down is he getting tired and so that was like the moment of hope for the Knicks right it's like oh Ewing actually blocked Jordan like maybe he's getting tired late in the fourth quarter and by the way Jordan played 39 minutes in this game he was averaging 39 minutes per game coming into this uh, uh, season after playing professional baseball where they don't even really break a sweat and he's out for 21 months since the the previous finals that he hasn't played right so it's kind of insane that he went from zero to 60 right back into like 39 minutes a night but anyway i digress right so if you take that that, it is insane if you take that play and i'm sure michael jordan had it in like in his brain as you know patrick ewing blocked my shot a few minutes ago Patrick might come out of the paint to do it again because I'm going to go to the same spot on the floor and I'm going to try the exact same shot that he swatted back in my face a few minutes ago. So Jordan, stop right there. Okay. Did Jordan set up Patrick? Did he let him block him early so that he could exploit him later? I, Is it possible? I I think we might be giving uh, a tiny bit too much credit, but. I would not put it past Michael Jordan to do something like that. I mean, just next level chess master move right there. Just Bobby Fischer four moves ahead. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so so Jordan gets to that spot again, and Patrick Ewing just leaves Bill Wennington right under the basket to try to block Jordan's fadeaway again. And Jordan is basically in the shot form. You know, he's turning around, he's fading. And he just whips a beautiful pass, wide open Bill Wennington under the basket. Bill Wennington played five minutes in this entire game, and he hit the game-winning layup. And No, yeah, stop right there. Bill Wennington is the fifth option on the court, right? They've got Steve Kerr in the corner. They've got B.J. Armstrong. They've got Pippen, all of whom have had pretty nice games. Uh, actually, Kerr didn't have a great game, but of course, he's like the best three-point shooter in the league at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Jordan has had 55 points, right? So everyone is looking at him. All five Knicks defenders are looking at him. He's got two people directly on him and everybody else staring at him. Wennington is a seven-foot Canadian center, no disrespect to Canada, who played five minutes in that game and was scoreless to that point. And he's standing right underneath the hoop by himself with like a six-foot buffer, no one else around him. And Jordan whips that mid-air pass to him pretty hard. 
At any point, did you think Weddington was going to fumble the pass out of bounds? Did that cross your mind? Unfortunately, I knew that the the Bulls won by two. (laughs) So I knew that as soon as the pass was made, I was like, that is just brilliant. And obviously this guy's going to finish it because there's three seconds to go. But if I was watching live, I would have not been able to breathe. So I remember my initial reaction, and this could be colored by history, but I remember my initial reaction was, don't pass it. What are you doing? Like, I mean, even though he was <laughs> wide open, I was like, Jordan, shoot it. But he caught the he caught the pass cleanly, goes up for the two-hand dunk. Nobody's close to him, completely uncontested. It's the best moment of Bill Wennington's life. Can we agree? I mean, I think that nothing would top that. Of, of the all-time <laughs> cameos, like this is one of Jordan's greatest performances. Like It's not as good as like Paxson hitting a title-winning jumper or you know Kerr delivering like you know late game or whatever. But this Winnington's dunk is way up there on like the random Jordan teammates file uh, in terms of big moments. I gotta say, why don't why isn't this a bigger uh, like highlight play when we watch the you know when Jordan's highlight reels grace us in various forms? Why do we never see this one? Well. It goes to the idea that not only was it Wennington's only two points of the game, but Jordan finished with two assists. <laughs> like, he wasn't real yes. big on passing. No. <laughs> wasn't Passing wasn't necessarily uh, his famous thing. But uh, the other layer to this, though, was three days previously, Jordan had just beat the Hawks with a uh, you know jumper in Steve Smith's faith, uh, face at the buzzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, game game winner, right? So everyone's thinking, oh, he's going to do it again two games in a row, right? So again, it goes back to the chess move thing. I don't know exactly why. I think because so many of his shots are spectacular, so many of his dunks are spectacular, so many of his layups are just like artistic. You hardly ever see highlights of Jordan's passes. And he wasn't the game's most willing passer, but there was a stretch of his career where he basically played de facto point guard. He could pass the ball. He knew how to make the right play. His biggest issue was, you know, trusting his teammates. And that's what was so special about that play is he trusted the worst guy on the court with the entire game and a 55-point performance was hanging in the balance at Madison Square Garden, right? Um, And that's why it's such a plot twist for me because I didn't trust Wennington in that moment and I definitely didn't trust Jordan to trust Wennington in that moment. And yet Jordan actually did. Uh, it's a great rewatch. I encourage everyone, go back. You can find it on the NBA's uh, YouTube page. They've got it all condensed, no commercials. It's like two hours. Bring it on. Uh, I could talk about this game all day. So I know we just spent the last five minutes trashing Bill Wennington and saying how we did not trust him, and we are shocked that he was able to convert the game-winning basket. But do you feel like Patrick Ewing is the goat here for just, I mean, if you rewatch it, Starks slips a little bit when Jordan's making his move, but Jordan doesn't rise up at that point. He kind of lets Starks recover. And I know that Jordan had 55 at the time and he was drilling jumpers the whole game. And we just, you know, Patrick Ewing did get his fingertips on one of those shots and was able to deflect it. But do you blame Ewing at all for just leaving his man wide open underneath the basket? I mean, was he expecting a help rotation off the corners where BJ and Steve Kerr were? Or like what what's going through his head there? Yeah, the, the help should have come from BJ's side for sure. I think that he, I think that everyone in the building thought Jordan was gonna shoot it. It wasn't just me projecting the, that feeling onto that moment. 
he had such a desire to be the hero and it would have been such just a monster statement for him to take that shot and he got exactly to the spot he wanted to get to patrick knew that um and i think that patrick also you could tell he was a little bit desperate or overexcited with the double because he had just gotten that block shot so he's thinking hey this is going to be my chance like jordan's ruined my life like 50 times i'm finally (laughs) going to be able to get one right so i don't blame patrick at all um the last thing in the world anyone really could have prepared for was the pass to winnington and that's why i think the help defenders there's no help defense because if you go back and watch that play and just freeze frame it all five Knicks players are just staring at Jordan. They're just waiting to find out, are they going to live or are they going to die? Jordan is the the executioner, you know? Yeah. And they're not even really playing at that point. It's just sort of like, okay, like, let's, let's just watch. And you don't see that very often. You know, I wonder, you know, if you fast forward and give these guys modern defensive coaching and, and everything else, like, you know, do they handle that situation better? You know, certainly it's possible. Um, but I think in that moment, I guess the best way to say it is they were all transfixed. I thought the double from Ewing was actually fairly appropriate. Um, Starks was slipping and sliding all over the court. He did recover, like you said, but Jordan was going right to that spot he wanted to shoot from. And I think that's really what made Ewing think, okay, I don't have any other choice. I have to just go do this. It wasn't the world's best double. I just think it was the right decision in the moment. Yeah. I think someone else, I think Jordan should have been doubled. I think someone else should have like not the guy who's defending the seven footer right next to the rim should have what should have come up and tried to squeeze the ball out of Jordan's hands. Um, but yeah, no incredible game. And I know people who are probably wondering, wait, there were three seconds left. Didn't the Knicks have an opportunity to tie the game or win the game? And yes, they did. The ball was inbounded to John Starks. He committed a backcourt violation and fell over. So that's how that yeah. one ended. Well, again, it's just the like psych- the psychic power of Jordan. Like you just you just get beat by him on that play so badly, and you can't even stand up and walk in the aftermath of it. You're just in a daze, and Starks is like falling all over himself, stumbles the ball in the backcourt, and Jordan's just kind of standing there center court, pumping his fist like he used to. It is wild, very very fun rewatch. Anyone who hasn't seen it, especially people, Michael, we've been getting a lot of emails from people saying, "Hey, I just got into basketball a couple years ago." If that's true, go back and watch that game. You will uh, you will enjoy the entire experience. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, let's shift gears here because we got a great question from Mazato in New Zealand. He writes, I've been listening to the podcast on Spotify for around a year and I've enjoyed every episode. I'm a very recent NBA fan. Hey, I was just talking about these guys. And I loosely followed events up until 2017. 
Um, from that point on, I really clicked with the Celtics making their Eastern Conference Finals run, and I've been a big fan since. I like watching developing stars like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum flourish, as well as seeing one of the younger coaches in Brad Stevens leading them to success. Here's my question for both of you. Who are your top five coaches in the NBA at this moment? And he says, my next question is a follow-up specifically for Michael the Pod Pina. How do you see Brad Stevens compared to the best coaches in the NBA and whether he will be able to win a title with the Celtics? Michael, feel free to use this as an opportunity to actively partake in some Celtics propaganda. Okay, okay, Masato, slow things down. We don't need too much Celtics propaganda. Michael, I want to take his question, which is a good one about the coaches, and I just want to twist it slightly, okay? I want to know if you're an NBA player, you're not just a volleyball high school star, Mm -hmm. but you're actually an NBA player. (laughs) If you could have your choice of, say, the top three coaches that you would want to play for, in other words, who you think would really be able to get the best out of you, who would trust you to you know, put you in situations for success, who's going to take you to a title, whatever it else, maybe who's going to get you your max contract. I don't know exactly what your life priorities are, Michael. Uh, I don't know if you're a selfish guy or, or a team first guy. Um, which coach uh, are you choosing to play with? Maybe just give me you know, two or three and, and why. Okay, I've, I've got my top three here, and I also have my top five coaches in the league if we ever want to go down that road, because that's also a fascinating conversation and a really difficult well, one to answer. Yeah, just list them real quick, and then I'll yell at you, and then we can move on. Okay, <laughs> just with no context, <laughs> and in no particular order, I have Eric Spolstra, Brad Stevens, Greg Popovich, Mike Budenholzer, and Nick Nurse. Yeah, I know those are pretty, they're pretty solid. I mean, the Warriors fans are going to be mad, no Steve Kerr. That does feel like a snub here, Michael, can't lie, but we, we can argue about that at a later date. Mm-hmm. Give me the guys who you want to play for. I want to know more mm-hmm. about your personal psychology and your uh, and your motivations. Okay, so this was actually ve- like very, very, very easy for me. I don't know what that says about me or, or why it was so just straightforward to take these three guys, but they all popped into my head at the same time. Uh, number one, Mike D'Antoni. Number two, Ooh. okay, I'm just going to say, say them all real quick, and then I'll run through why, because the, the through lines are very clear and kind of obvious, and there's a real thematic continuation here. So Mike D'Antoni, Steve Kerr, and Doc Rivers. and Fa- Fascinating. So you like the players' coaches, it ex- feels like, ex- maybe a little bit. Exactly. So I picked all guys who are former players. All great communicators who could relate to my experience as this volleyball turned NBA superstar. Uh, they all understand roles. They understand the importance of defining them. They understand just the daily struggle of what it's like to be an NBA player. Um, and speaking from my experience in reality as a writer, those three are probably my favorite head coaches to talk to. And I think they're, I mean, not that there aren't other bright coaches in the league because there are a ton of guys who are awesome to strike up a conversation with Uh, but whenever I ask a question of one of these three guys the answer they just they never disappoint ever so shout out to them and they're also obviously big time winners great great answers I'm with you on Doc I'm with you on uh, Steve Kerr too now D'Antoni is the one where I don't know if I would be able to to mesh with him as a player because he is. He can be so flippant. That's kind of his personality. He's funny. He's got a lot of throwaway lines, and mm-hmm. he loves to defer the credit. But I think when I get into a competitive environment, I'm so like overly serious. You know, like I'm wound really tight. And if I like walked into the locker room at halftime and we were down ten, and Dan Tony's cracking some joke from like his West Virginia charm, I think I might just 
freaking throw a chair. Like I just might lose my mind. Like I just think it would be a little bit of an oil and water situation. So it's possible that he has one face for the media and one face behind closed doors, in which case maybe it would work out for me. But I, I think otherwise I might, that might be a, a constant source of tension of like, okay, what, you know, what are we laughing about here? How are we brushing this stuff off? We need to take this more seriously. So that's why I love Doc. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He feels the losses. He yells at the officials just like I would yell at the officials. I think there's a lot. And I, I also think he has got this inspirational type quality to how he speaks where uh, it's captivating. It can suck you in. It's almost brainwashing to a certain degree. Um, and so I, I think he'd be way high on my list. Um, another guy who I would, would really consider would be Quinn Snyder. Um, I don't know if I relate to him on sort of like the basketball psycho level, but the idea that <laughs> there's no one who's going to be more prepared than Quinn Snyder, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know his heart and soul is into preparing for the game, probably doesn't even sleep. It's very possible he's awake 24 hours a day. Um, he's really into the math and the numbers, forward thinking type guy, super prepared. And I just think that like if I had to go out there knowing that my entire livelihood, my health, hundreds of millions of dollars, whatever was on the line, I would want to know that my coach was completely locked in and completely like, you know, obsessed with his job. And I would feel very comfortable with Quinn. And if he gave me a death look, I wouldn't mind it because I would probably be shooting some death glares right back at him. Um, I think that could be a, a good match. I also like the Kerr idea, you know, the touchy-feely stuff and community-based stuff would be a hard sell. I feel like I might be Kevin Durant in that environment where I'm just kind of like, bro, just give me the basketball. We don't need to have all this like rah-rah talk. So I would probably leave him off my list. Another one though, a guy who struck me, and I'm curious if you would agree. What about Monty Williams? You know, he's got this just like stoic demeanor. Um, He's calming and yet authoritative. He's been around forever, can relate to guys. I just feel like if I was going through a slump, Monty is the guy who I want to be like, hey, come into my office, young man. We're going to talk this through. Like We're going to sort you out. And I feel like that could be kind of a, an important thing too. So I think those are my answers. Quinn Snyder, uh, Monty Williams, and Doc. What do you think? So Monty was actually an honorable mention for me here. Uh, I think he's a master motivator, uh, also a former player, Someone who, you know, cuts the fat out of every conversation, it seems. Uh, And I can understand why you would pick him because he hardly ever smiles. Uh, So, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but but I I also want to go back and just say about Quinn Snyder really quickly. You know, one of the better qualities, I think, that Quinn has is his open mindedness and uh, I uh, I wrote a story a few years back about uh, about Quinn in that he spent a season as an assistant coach with uh, Cheska Moscow during the lockout uh, in back in 2011, <clears throat> and. I got to sit down with him for about a half hour, 45 minutes, and just chat about what that experience was like and what he got from it. And it was truly eye-opening. And just, you know, there's there are still coaches in, in the NBA, it's sad but true, who are very kind of ingrained in their own ways and their own methodologies, and they don't kind of see new strategies or schemes or things that might work that they have never tried before that they are not willing to like what I love about Quinn Snyder is just his ability to kind of take all this different 
all these different experiences and all this information and kind of formulate his own touch and that's awesome and that's just like a really cool quality of of him and why he's such an intriguing coach but i would also not really want to play for him because yeah that he's got like veins that pop out of his eyelids that would just scare the hell out of me well on those same lines wouldn't you probably have jim boylan in your top five i mean such an adaptable (laughs) mind (laughs) is boylan 30th or 30th on your list michael uh yeah that's that's a rough one i i do not have jim boylan i did not consider him i did not think about him for this sorry to say okay uh we're gonna we're gonna double back on the next episode with our bottom three coaches we would want to play for okay so that could be your homework for the next show all right um great question from masato there's no doubt um, let's get another question in here from Paul in Kingston. He writes, love the show. Thanks for keeping it going. I just listened to the latest podcast and I heard that Michael the Pod Pina admitted that he can barely watch live games anymore due to the uh, frequent stoppages of play. It makes me think there could be some unintended consequences for the NBA with this DVR method. Namely, how many other influencers, team owners, GMs, etc., are watching games recorded or edited for efficiency instead of watching the whole game live. As a consequence, are those people less sensitive compared to the average fan when it comes to the damage done by stoppages? Should we force Adam Silver and the team's marketing departments to watch games in full? Maybe the powers that be should be forced to watch games with double the amount of timeouts. Every time the play stops, I want team owners to feel extra bored and annoyed. That way, we could speed the games up, hopefully, and they would agree to make things more fan-friendly. So, Michael, are you part of a growing trend of people who cannot stand live basketball? What do you think? um, Is this a prevalent problem when you talk to people? Are you the only one who does this? I mean, where do you come down on uh, this as a possible trend? When I talk to other writers, yeah, they they do the exact same thing that I do. They love DVR. They love fast-forwarding through commercials, through timeouts, through free throws. Uh, I mean, I think on my very first open floor episode, we were, we did a, we answered a question about new rules or what we would do if we, I was a commissioner for the day. And one of the things I said was I would completely just eliminate halftime, <laughs> which you did not appreciate. So I love all of this. I, I mean, I don't think it'll ever happen because commercials are kind of what help the league run, and the league would not exist without them insofar as it is constructed. But yeah, games need to be a little shorter, and the action needs to run more fluidly. It can always run more fluidly, and so I'm all I'm all for this. Yeah, for me, the big problem isn't necessarily that there's a disconnect between the decision makers and how they view the length of a game and the average fan. I think the biggest problem from a length of game perspective is that it encourages a lot of viewers to just not watch the whole game because it feels like it's too heavy and then they only watch the highlight clips or they only watch whatever's you know going viral on social media and then that's their perception of the entire sport right so it, it really bothers me when it comes through to like uh you know player rankings you know who's the best guys in the league and you know certain people if they're popular on social media they're more likely to be ranked higher than maybe they should be whereas guys who are less you know less flashy get underrated i mean that part really bothers me you know i I wish there was sort of like a mandatory minimum number of games every fan had to watch from start to finish before they could start weighing in on those kinds of conversations because i just feel like there's a distorting element in terms of uh, how people within the league experience the games 
I think if you're going to games regularly, you know better than anyone how long they take, right? Because when I go to a game, I'm there like two, three hours early and I'm there until midnight, right? So that's an entire workday built around what should be like a two hour game. And so I think the NBA and especially the team officials, they definitely get it. And a lot of their effort has gone into how can we entertain people in the building, in the gym to kind of keep them engaged and activated. And I think that the the league has made quite a bit of progress on that front over the last 10 years, just in terms of getting more creative with, uh, you know, the, the goofy stuff they do, throwing t-shirts into the crowd and the halftime acts and everything else. Um, but the larger point is true. Everyone benefits if the games would be shorter, if they were tighter, if there were fewer stoppages of play, if they would get rid of some of the replays. Um, and I, every time the NBA adds another, like the coach's challenge, it just felt inexplicable. It's like, this is going against everything that everyone's been saying for the last five years. Now we're just kind of cutting against the grain, going the wrong direction with it. And I do think that, uh, you know, this viewership stuff could become an even bigger deal, um, you know, because of the coronavirus, when you're trying to get fans back into the building, when you're trying to, you know, get people tuning back in after a long delay and after their viewing habits and schedules have been disrupted, um, the last thing people want to do in that situation is watch three back-to-back timeouts and two back-to-back challenges, right? Yeah, I think the the coaches challenge is a really good thing that you just brought up. It's so paradoxical because the league obviously wants to get everything right and they want a true winner. They don't want people complaining about bad whistles and you know fouls that were were uh, you know ungenerously called or whatever what have you. But at the same time, you want the speed. Basketball is a game that is often compared to jazz. It needs to flow. It can't be stifled as much as it is, particularly in these humongous spots at the end of games. And so rhythm is a huge part of the game for the players, for the coaches, for everyone. And I don't know how you solve this problem. It's something that the league has always tried to to deal with. And but like, I, I just don't think that coaches' challenges are are really helping anybody. Yeah, they got to nuke those before it becomes an ingrained part. Michael, we got another question on this idea of the crowds, though. It comes in from Giannis, uh, and he's in Greece. Don't think it's the our Giannis. Um, I think it's another Giannis, which, of course, we appreciate. Um, Giannis writes, I've been a listener for about a year now, and I've got to say nothing gets me through an hour at the gym, the walk to my college library, or the 45-minute drive to my girlfriend's place quite like open floor. Giannis, I hope she never moves. So I hope you have that long commute both (laughs) ways so you can constantly listen to us. He continues, I want to thank you guys for being one of the few things that keeps me sane during the quarantine and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say next. I grew up watching the EuroLeague almost exclusively because of my allegiance to Olympiacos and only really started following the NBA in 2014. As you guys might know, in Europe, fans are far more expressive than in the NBA, just like in European soccer. In most arenas, they strive to create an intimidating atmosphere to essentially be a sixth man on the court for their team, booing very loudly when the other team has the ball, as well as having a number of long chants and songs they sing during the game. The statistics show that EuroLeague teams perform significantly better at home than NBA teams do on average. Do you guys think this kind of atmosphere would improve the NBA or harm it? Assuming that this kind of atmosphere existed in the NBA, which team's fans do you think would create the most intimidating atmosphere and which ones would be the most docile? And Michael, I just want to add to this conversation about the fans. You know, we we can't be just speaking in a vacuum here. We got to be, you know, taking into account, uh, you know, recent events with the coronavirus and the idea that social distancing is going to be a thing for a while 
and it's probably going to be very nerve-wracking once they open the arenas back up, whether that's next season or whenever they do that. Um, so what do you make of this idea? Should the NBA fans be more like EuroLeague fans uh, or European soccer fans? Uh, is it plausible? And if not, why not? I, I mean, <laughs> I could not ever see a an NBA, unfortunately, where fans behave this way. For a variety of reasons, I mean the proliferation of you know luxury box seats and just the general price increases and in sections closer to the floor make it just really difficult to imagine. Uh, but you know, also like I, I don't think that there will be flares and small fires in the crowd. I don't think that'll be a thing that's allowed. Or uh, you know, I once talked to a player who was playing, I think in Turkey about what that experience was like. And, uh, you know, he said it was like there was so much smoke in the building at times that it felt afterwards like you would just smoke a pack of cigarettes, which is just not what you want from for your basketball players. I don't think the NBA would be too pumped about that. Um, so I don't think it would be, it, it, it's a possible likelihood, but I do think there are some fans that would, really give severe advantages to their teams and you kind of see it already with some of the there are definitely some home crowds that are better than others uh one of the first that comes to mind is wells fargo center in philadelphia which is just like it's just a lion's den um and i I, are we are we sure there haven't been any flares in the wells fargo center (laughs) i mean no i I don't think it's a coincidence that this team went 29 and two at home and 10 and 24 on the road before the season was suspended. I really don't. Uh, like that's a great home crowd, and I'm honestly shocked, regardless of who's on the floor, whenever they lose at home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people would point to Utah, maybe Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Portland. Um, maybe some teams from the Western Conference as well that have just kind of amazing home court advantages. And if there was some sort of, you know, active measure to increase craziness, right? Uh, you could kind of see that spreading. There has been efforts to to create these supporter type sections. Milwaukee tried one. There's a section in Portland that try, has, has long tried to be, uh, you know, kind of the leader of chance and everything. But Michael hit the nail on the head. It's the white collar crowd. You know, it's very difficult to get those people to put on free T-shirts, let alone stand for, you know, two straight hours cheering on the team. Uh, and I think the pace of play and the timeouts that we've described contributes to that, too. Uh, it just winds up making it a little bit more of a casual scene um, at games and a schmoozing type scene, unfortunately. Now, one guy who's obsessed with this, though, Michael, is Clippers owner Steve Ballmer. And you might remember as part of his plans for the new Clippers arena at in-, in Inglewood that he wants to build, he was hoping to have an entire baseline section that he was going to call the wall of sound. And there was going to be basically no obstructions from the court level all the way up to the top of the ar- arena. So in other words, there was going to be no second or, or third bowl. And it was just going to be an entire supporter section where people were going to go absolutely crazy and they, you know, incentivizing super fans to go there, probably changing the prices on the tickets to maybe make that a little bit uh, more possible. And it, he was really going to try to you know, create a home court advantage along the lines of what Giannis is describing. Um, one of my first thoughts here over the last couple of weeks has been, is that idea even possible anymore, right? Is this going to be something that people are really getting excited about? And, you know, we've seen some similar supporter sections at MLS uh, games here in 
in the United States, and clearly they're not playing on the same level as European soccer teams. But you know, like the the local LA team here, uh, LAFC has a really really loud supporter section. Uh, t- uh, the Timbers Army up in Portland is is pretty serious. They've got the TFOs and you know smoke bombs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not like it's impossible for the American audience to get, but I do wonder if this is going to throw a wrench into kind of all of those plans, you know? I actually did not know about the wall of sound. That sounds, uh, no pun intended, uh, incredible. I would love to see that happen. And it, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, like the 13th man, I think it's called, or the 12th man in, uh, it's gotta be the 12th man actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that where the Seattle Seahawks play in that arena, whatever that's called. Um, <laughs> so I also, I just think it's speaking of differences between, uh, the United States and Europe and how their fans behave. I, I think there are just, uh, unquantifiable cultural dissimilarities that, it would. I mean, that's just a whole different other conversation for why people behave the way they behave. But I, I just don't think that it would be a thing here, unfortunately. But you are right to point out the Utahs and the Oklahoma Cities and the, even the, like, the Sacramentos and the Portlands and all these places where there's only one professional sports team in the city because those people are live and die and they're just really awesome fans. For sure. And you get it sometimes during the playoffs where everybody's up and it's really loud and it's really crazy and it's deafening. And that's the best time of the entire season, right? There's just so many games here. It's difficult to imagine people sustaining that. Also, the arenas are so big. You know, there's been a trend, especially among recent arenas, to kind of downsize them from 20,000 plus to like 16 to 18,000 people. Uh, to make a more intimate kind of basketball friendly setting. Um, and that's sort of the same deal that that Balmer was going for. And I almost wonder if they went even smaller and brought it down to like 14,000, if you could really get a, a nice, tight, rowdy atmosphere, almost more like a college environment. But, you know, I, I don't go to a lot of college basketball games or cover them. And if I do, it's usually March Madness. But I'll say this. I mean, uh, like that the Duke-UNC game that I went to, uh, not this season, but the previous season, was one of the wildest crowd atmospheres I've ever seen anywhere. And, you know, Cameron Indoor, I mean, it might not be Olympiacos, man, but that's, you know, that's something serious. Like those kids are going wild for the entire game. And I think part of the problem, though, is that once you get to the professional level, like if your team's not good, there's not enough city pride in like Orlando. Like we're so proud we're from Orlando. We're going to scream for two hours, even if our team is 500, right? Like the only time the pride really comes out is when teams are contenders. And so I just think you'd have a hard time finding like 5,000 Orlando citizens to jump up and down 41 times a year for a mediocre team and DJ Augustin, right? That's just a tough sell for anyone. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's just like hard to picture. And the last thing I want to say, Ben, is kind of jumping off your point, like what will Barclays Center look? Because when I was, I was writing down a few arenas that are just really terrible and have no... uh, no identity and no atmosphere in terms of you know what you would want in a competitive environment and Barclays Center a place that I go all the time is on that list and I just wonder what that they'll look like even when the the Nets if when the Nets are championship contenders I mean it'll be interesting to see because the crowds there are just as you said they're extremely white collar and I mean there's really no fan base to speak of to begin with I didn't even know they had people at the games, to be honest. Just watching from television, you you would think that they're playing in an empty arena. All right, we're going to wrap this up, Michael, with two related questions, all right? First off, Chris writes, 
Great show, guys. Longtime listener who appreciates you guys way more right now than ever. We appreciate that, Chris. This is a basketball pod, and there is absolutely no way we can let Michael Pina get away with talking up his 40-inch vertical leap and how it only connected to volleyball. We need a full breakdown of his dunking ability. First dunk, best dunk, in-game dunks, even if it was just pickup. Chris writes, I'm six foot two and I used to have a 40 inch vertical as well. I could do pump reverses and the occasional windmill. So Michael, tell us your dunk stories. Let them rip. And I'll be honest, this was a, a more friendly version than what was coming in on Instagram, Michael, <laughs> where the entire social media network of Instagram does not believe you can dunk uh, or, or jump 40 inches off the ground. Uh, you posted a very nice photo of yourself as a high school volleyball athlete. Uh, after our recent conversation about your, uh, you know, your big time athletic career, and there was a lot of haters coming into my mentions or my DMs saying, you know, you got to call this guy out, Michael. I like to believe you. I would appreciate some character witnesses, but um, you know, certainly you have a lot to answer for. But however, before we get to that, Zachary writes: After finding out that Michael the Pod Pina is an avid volleyball player, I was wondering if you wanted to sub in on my recreational sand volleyball team this summer. I live in Milwaukee and we have a few sand volleyball leagues here, making a lot of assumptions, but let's say the NBA finishes the season, the Bucks are in the finals, media members are allowed to attend the games, and Michael makes the trip to Milwaukee. Would he be interested in subbing in on my volleyball team? We're a middle-of-the-road team in the A-League, but we're definitely competitive with the best teams. We'll buy all the beer he wants, and if we win the championship somehow, we'll send him the shirt we get for winning. Thanks for making me laugh during some tough times. So that's an awesome email from Zachary and just an awesome offer, Michael. So please regale us briefly with your dunking tales, defend your honor against Instagram, and give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down on being the ringer for Zachary's Milwaukee-based beach volleyball team. What do you got? Yeah, so I have not played volleyball in probably 12 years or something like that. So I I would love to... uh, to come to Milwaukee, Zachary, and, you know, use my... It's like riding a bicycle. (laughs) Yeah, sure, yeah. The disrespect of volleyball. Jeez Louise, Ben. Um, No, I I would love to to be the ringer, as you so aptly put, Ben, and, uh, you know, use my years of experience and just my, my guile as a backline defender. Um, no, <laughs> I would, I would be absolutely terrible. I'm not going to lie. Um, I also, like I, I just, just to answer the, the question about, uh, dunking, I have never dunked a basketball in my entire life. Hold on a minute, Michael. How tall are you? I, I don't want to, come on, man. I don't want to give my height away. Okay. But you're tall enough. For I'm the not I, I, vertical I, leap. You I, could I, dunk, right? So I, okay. I've dunked a tennis ball. I'm not a. I'm not. I'm not the tallest. I was compared to Steve Francis earlier. Um, right. Well, I'm not saying you're a Muggsy Bugs. I'm not trying to call you out as some sort of a Munchkin, Michael. <laughs> but come on, like, I, I think his point is uh, the emailer's point was that if you could dunk, you certainly could with a 40 inch vertical leap. You could dunk, right? Yeah. No, that was not the case for me. And I, oh. l- Lord knows, I tried. Um, so this email actually hurt my feelings quite a bit. Uh, it made me oh, think about no. About all the attempts uh, on the blacktops of Alston, Massachusetts. Uh, real tough, real tough. Um, there was actually this one court that we used to play on all the time, and the front rim was slightly bent, like slightly tilted forward from, I guess, years of people trying to dunk on it and just 
almost ripping it down off the backboard. So that was like the closest rim. I used to love that rim. Um, and that was the closest one we used to try throwing lobs to each other and things like that. But I mean, I have, you know, I don't want to just totally indict myself here, but like my hands are never, were never big enough to palm a basketball or anything like that. So dunking a basketball, very, very difficult. Getting up with two hands, very, very difficult. So Well, here's what I can say in your defense, Michael, because this does sound like you're going through some real psychological tough times in this moment. <laughs> um, I believe you now about the 40-inch vertical leap because you're being so honest about your height, the size of your hands, and, and maybe some other you know inadequacies <laughs> oh, that can hold you back from dunking that I now believe you. I, I, honestly, I didn't believe you earlier about the, uh, about the uh, vertical leap, but now I do because you're just pouring it all out for a, an international global podcast audience. So I appreciate your honesty. Um, I was able to dunk in one high school basketball game it was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. I believe I got a technical foul for celebrating, which was like the most <laughs> just Bush League thing to do. Um, just got it on the breakaway. No one in front of me, you know, paced out the steps, barely got it over the front rim. Um, I will never forget it. Uh, reacted like I won a title. Um, there was no scores table to jump on. <laughs> but if there had been, I would have. Probably 20 people watching and, and maybe, you know, zero other people would remember this moment besides myself but i certainly do i cling to it forever and on that note michael we've talked about your greatness my greatness michael jordan's greatness it's been a full trip down memory lane uh we'll be back later this week to do it all again but guys check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word Follow Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. Like I said, he's been putting up hot open floor content for everybody out there. So check it out. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver. On Twitter at BenGolver. Don't forget, sign up for my Washington Post newsletter. Follow along at WashingtonPost.com slash sports. Hey guys, until later this week, I'll talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. <laughs>